Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The philosophy of sex. Welcome to the philosophy of sex. Long play. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Today, we're talking about consent. The idea of affirmative consent first attracted attention in the early 1990s, but back then, it was viewed as a joke, including when Saturday Night Live absolutely lampooned it. Even the New York Times editorial board deemed the concept almost impossible to implement. The Times, at least in the 90s, saw a fundamental unfairness in a system that, when working as designed, would require the accused to prove that they obtained consent, rather than requiring the authorities to prove that the accuser withheld consent. In Australia, the Victorian government recently introduced a requirement for affirmative consent. This means a person must take active steps to confirm that they've received consent for sexual activity or risk committing a crime. The New South Wales government's Affirmative Consent Bill, which passed the Upper House on Tuesday 23rd of November 2021, stipulates that the New South Wales Crimes Act will be changed to specify consent to sexual activity must be communicated by words or actions, not simply assumed. And while protection is undeniably important, The idea that law is the primary and most effective method for increasing women's safety and reducing sexual violence is one that I'm deeply skeptical about. Women are often told to know what they want and know how to communicate this to their partners. This assumes communication guarantees safety and that a pleasurable experience will follow. I wonder whether the pressure to give a fully formed and enthusiastic yes is at odds with the ability to take risks and explore sexually. If we look at the dominant culture around sex, it appears in recent years two requirements have emerged for good sex, consent and self-knowledge. This seems like progress. It takes women at their word and diffuses the potential for sexual violence. But does conceit of absolute clarity place the burden of good sexual interaction on women's behaviour? We might have supposed that the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s would have liberated women and men to say what it is they want and to get those wants satisfied without risk of safety. However, we know this hasn't been what has eventuated. This is messy and complex territory, but I see it as vital to address the conversation. So, to help me unpack the shortcomings of affirmative consent, I spoke with Catherine Angel. Catherine Angel is a writer and academic. She directs the MA in Creative and Critical Writing at Birkbeck University, London, where she teaches in fiction, non-fiction, as well as critical work relating to sexuality, feminism, gender, and psychoanalysis. Catherine has a PhD in the History of Psychiatry and Sexuality from the University of Cambridge. She's held multiple fellowships at academic institutions in Europe, the United States and the UK, including Harvard and the University of London's Centre for the History of Emotions. Her research into female sexual dysfunction, American psychiatry, sexology and feminism have been published in journals including the history of the human sciences, studies in gender and sexuality, and current opinion in psychiatry. I first read about Catherine's work in The New Yorker shortly after her most recent book, Tomorrow the Sex Will Be Good Again, was published in 2021. The book received widespread critical acclaim. And the book takes its title from Michel Foucault's sardonic declaration in the 1976 book, The Will to Knowledge that in the wake of the emancipatory movements of the day, tomorrow the sex will be good again, deflates any delusions that the goodness of sex hinges on the positive affirmation of our true desires. Foucault wrote, we must not think that by saying yes to sex, one says no to power. Speaking truth to power simply doesn't cut it, because the truth about our desires is that they're ambivalent, and the truth about power 
it doesn't often like truth. The ideas Catherine puts forward addresses the shortcomings of consent head-on, with a deep level of social intelligence and humility. Sex is messy, and that's undoubtedly part of its beauty. Complete clarity should not be a necessary condition for safety. As Catherine says, sex, if we're lucky, is not just exciting and satisfying. It also touches our deepest fears and our deepest pains. Catherine's idea that pain and fear are not to be eradicated from sexual experiences, but instead understood as central to it, positions sex as a type of experience we don't tend to acknowledge it as. If you asked, either Catherine or I, what do we potentially gain by moving away from risk management and legal ideas of consent to a place where risk is not only possible but encouraged, I think we would both say a lot. If you asked us what it might take to get there, a lot would once again be the answer. From no means no to me too. In this conversation, Catherine shares with me her original and insightful thoughts on consent and the complexities of female desire. A heads up that we do discuss sexual violence, rape and assault during the episode, but not in specific detail. Please enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Catherine Angel. I wanted to begin by hearing a little bit about what has motivated you to write about sexuality, particularly in the way that you have, where it's been a, a real combination of quite deeply personal writing, but also more academic writing, what that kind of process has been like for you. I always find that really hard to answer in a way, actually. It's interesting. I mean, I was always very interested in feminism from quite a young age and you know, in my teens, I was I was reading a lot of feminist texts, and I suppose you know quite a lot of them were circling around questions of sexuality and power and gender. You know, because those things have always been in play. But it was it was really when I was writing my PhD that was about psychiatry and medicine that I started to kind of you know think more concertedly about sexuality. I suppose. And my PhD was on, you know, the history of the way in which we've categorized sexual problems and sexual dysfunctions in men and women. You know, after writing a PhD about female sexual dysfunction and American psychiatry, I just sort of found myself writing my first book, which, you know, as you say, was kind of much more personal, sort of, you know, first person narrative about sexuality and gender it, it sort of felt inevitable to me. It felt inevitable that I would continue writing about sex, but in various different ways. And if and if I look back now at, you know, my PhD, that first book, Unmastered, and this book, and that whole trajectory, I think that one of the really key dynamics, if you like, that has really obsessed me is this question of, the relationship between risk and pleasure. So the fact that, you know, we live in a world which is full of violence and full of sexual violence and sexual harassment and, you know, where sexuality and desire are so contested for women. And I've felt it really strongly in my own life, you know, that that sort of field all around you and trying to figure out, you know, how to pursue pleasure, how to think about pleasure in that context of violence and fear about violence. And I think that's sort of a thread in a way that goes through that whole work, which, you know, is a kind of really fascinating intellectual question for me. But of course, I also live it too. I think we, you know, we all do in in some way or another. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's an interesting question, even in and of itself, why when we talk about pleasure, particularly in the context of women in certain other groups, does there have to be this conversation around violence and safety at the same time? The fact that those two things often go together, it, it says a lot. But I wanted to begin sort of framing 
what you talk about in the book and, and speak about Michel Foucault a little bit and what he actually said about sexuality that sort of triggered for you what you then went on to write about and Tomorrow the Sex Will Be Good Again. So if you could break down for us some of his sort of core ideas around repression and things like that that have informed you and what he actually meant by Tomorrow the Sex Will Be Good Again. So the title, you know, it, it comes from Michel Foucault's uh, History of Sexuality, that first volume. and But it's the English translation, so it's Robert Hurley's translation. And in the original, the French is slightly different. The French is mm-hmm. Edouard le bon sex, which doesn't have um, the word again in it. So so the original has a slightly kind of different resonance to it. And I'm kind of, I'm sort of interested in both those those phrases, if you like, because so in the French, the avocation is more um, that it's always tomorrow that sex will be good again, i.e. it's always something kind of deferred. You know, we always have this fantasy that sex is going to be good, that, you know, sexual problems um, and, you know, in I suppose in the context he was writing in the, the repression of sex will be undone and, you know, it's tomorrow that we'll get beyond that. If you introduce the word again in the English translation, of course that implies that we were already somehow in some kind of Edenic state of of sexual goodness or pleasure or freedom or whatever that might be, and we need to return to it. And I think, you know, either way, whatever kind of phrase one uses, that sentiment is is one that, you know, Foucault was very, very sceptical of. He was very sceptical, firstly, of this idea that, you know, the past was a past purely of sexual repression. So the, you know, the very kind of dominant characterization of the Victorian era as one where sex was impossible to talk about, where sexuality itself was kind of repressed. And he was also skeptical of the idea that was really in circulation, you know, in the 60s and 70s, these very utopian projects and philosophies that that were about um, undoing the kind of shackles of repression. And, you know, some of that was to do with using a kind of post-war American adaptation of Freud being about, you know, liberating yourself from the constraints of society that, you know, that that, that hem in our our desire and our drives. And some of it was, you know, to do with Marxist ideas of emancipation. So, you know, all that stuff is swirling around when Foucault is writing that, outlining an argument which on the one hand is saying that Victorian society was actually extremely sexual and it was you know there was a proliferation of discourses he calls it around sex he he says that there was an incite incitement to discourse in that era where in fact you know speech about sex was um multiplying and you know theories of sexuality and theories of the sexual person were being elaborated in the human sciences you know and in psychology and criminology and you know all of these fields that were really kind of emerging and solidifying at the end of the 19th century. So he's skeptical about the historical narrative, but he's also skeptical about the idea that, you know, now is when we're going to undo that repression. And I find I find that that sentiment just so interesting and so kind of rich and generative because I think that you know, on the one hand, it's undeniable that sexuality has often really been constrained and still is being constrained. And, you know, we need only look at what's happening in the US with um, abortion. That's, you know, it's a uh, a violation of kind of reproductive freedom and just, you know, bodily autonomy. But it is also, you know, it has the effect of constraining women's sexuality very, very clearly. You know, so we know that historically it has been the case that sexuality is constrained. But one of the things I'm interested in in thinking about is what are the kind of forms of um, knowledge and the forms of practice that we think are going to somehow emancipate us from sexual constraint? And, you know, some of those are to do with scientific forms of knowledge that I talk about in the book, and some of them are to do with, um, you know, consent and kind of the the proliferation of legal ways of thinking about sexuality. And just as a final thing about Foucault, I also think what's really interesting about that book is that I think it's a very kind of um, erotic book. 
you know, and Foucault was very kind of interested in sex himself. He had a very kind of rich, complex sexual life. And I think that, you know, there's something really fascinating about a kind of eroticized or fetishized relationship to scientific knowledge and technology that he evokes in that book that for me also raises this, it's a really difficult and troubling question, which is, is it necessarily the case that to be emancipated from various forms of constraint, is that going to be the thing that gives us a more rich, erotic life? And I think that for Foucault, that answer is no, because, you know, he's also interested in BDSM and in, or, you know, all kinds of sort of social and sexual practices that, that suggest that, you know, there isn't a straightforward relationship between kind of freedom and pleasure, actually. And I think that's such an interesting and difficult question that feminism has also been grappling with for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you you read the text and you, you could just as easily be reading it today as you could have been in the 1970s. It's, it's still so incredibly relevant. I think particularly as his points around how we've really converted sex into something that is primarily a discourse or a science as opposed to sort of a bodily felt experience. So it's interesting to me that, you know, the dominant narrative would say that we are more liberated now than we've ever been. But you don't have to look too far into a lot of what was being written in alternative narratives at an earlier time to see that we're still really grappling with a lot of the same issues that we were throughout history. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting because it's a kind of historical text, but it's also not in a way, you know, it's sort of, it's about, it's sort of ostensibly about the past, but it's really also about how we think about the past and the present and the future. And that's, that's also what I find so generative about that book, because I think that's what we're always doing. You know, we use our conceptions of the past to tell a story about where we are now and how we want things to be different in the future but you know those narratives don't always stand up no and as you say it's it clouds where we go in quite a obvious way where if you're constantly being reactionary and are never kind of able to get above the the cloud of the recent past and and what you want for the future then things can get very messy and I think it's it's just so relevant to a lot of what the issues that we're seeing in consent. And this is why I'm particularly interested in in your work, because I think you do a wonderful job of kind of lifting up above the dominant narrative to kind of see, well, what what is actually going on here? Does just speaking about sex necessarily amount to liberation or emancipation? Um, or is it really just another form of of constraint that's, you know, resulted from what we thought would previously give us liberation? And, you know, at the start of the book, it's interesting because you talk a lot about um, the Me Too movement and how that kind of triggered a lot of this thinking for you around discourse and dialogue and feeling a pressure to speak about sexual experiences and, and things like that. So I wanted to ask you about your ideas of speech and liberation and the relationship between those two things and, and how sex kind of fits within that. Yeah, it's really, I think it's really complicated that question because I think it has been a sort of orthodoxy in some ways within within feminist discourse and within, you know, progressive movements more generally that that speaking out is necessarily good and it's also a duty. And it's not that I think that isn't straightforwardly true. I mean, I think that it's undeniably... Well, first of all, it's undeniably important that people should be able to speak out. You know, they should be allowed to speak about their experiences. And it's also true that that can be really powerful. It can be really powerful for people to hear about, you know, say, experiences of sexual violence or harassment or whatever, you know, not least because it makes them feel less lonely. It makes them feel like it's less personal if they've experienced it, that it's that, it, you know, it's they haven't been singled out. It's you know, it's a, it's a pattern, which is also, of course, an incredibly depressing thing to, to understand. And it can be really important and powerful for an individual speaking out about their experiences, which is, you know, why things like witness statements in trials can be so powerful and, 
you know, I think cathartic for people to undertake, if incredibly painful, that is all kind of a given for me. But I think that we slide from the acknowledgement of that into something else, which is, well, first of all, a kind of actual enjoyment of the spectacle of something like Me Too, because, you know, I think it's important to be honest about that whole time. It was it was incredibly upsetting and disturbing. It was also exciting, because partly because there was a feeling of momentum gathering. But I also think that it was a spectacle. It was it was kind of linked to to the industries in which it focused on, you know, which was cinema and, you know, the performing industries, these kind of glamorous spectacles. And I think that there was an element of, you know, of enjoyment of, of the thrill of seeing that unfold, I think, culturally, which, you know, it may have its uses, but it also raises so many questions. I mean, what happens to these women who tell their incredibly painful stories, you know, stories of humiliation and violence, you know, in the full knowledge that there's loads of people who think that they're, you know, they bought it on themselves or whatever. But it also, I think, can slide into something which is about a duty, you know, an expectation that you that if you care about these issues, you have to kind of speak your own story and that there's, you know, there's something kind of morally imperative about that. And I think in the wake of Me Too, you know, I began to feel that there was something about that which which was really interesting and which was also tied to this um, this kind of atmosphere, I think, that emerged in the last few decades, which is a kind of you know, idealization of the figure of the woman who can overcome and who is strong and who is confident enough either to bat away those men somehow. I mean, how you bat away Harvey Weinstein, I'm not sure, but, or to be able to tell your story, you know, to have the kind of almost like the feminist courage, the feminist knowledge that this is for the greater good that you can, you know, overcome your feelings of brokenness and pain and supply this material in order to change things for the better. And so I began to kind of think about that in relation to, you know, post-feminism and sort of neoliberal ideas of, of the kind of strong individual who may not be able to reckon with these powerful structural patterns, but goddamn, she can, you know, stand up on a stage and tell her story. And that disturbs me because it's so much about the individual. And it also encourages us to look down on the woman who can't do that or the woman who doesn't want to do that. Mm. Well, and it makes women responsible for something ultimately that they're not responsible for. You know, the, the outcome is on their shoulders, whether they choose to say something and be absolved of the guilt and shame of what was inflicted mm-hmm. upon them or they choose to kind of suffer in silence and you can end up feeling like those are your only two options really mm-hmm. when that that shouldn't be the case at all. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you was obviously there's a pretty dominant narrative, I guess, that there's sort of these assumed truisms that it's it's really capitalism and patriarchy that are the two sort of dominant forces that have gotten us to the point that we're at now. Obviously, Foucault sort of proposes an alternative narrative to that. I think some would probably try and negate that by saying, you know, it's just another white male philosopher. And that would be the the kind of baseline response. But I don't necessarily think that's fair or, or true. So wondering what your sort of thoughts about those assumptions are. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes when we talk about things like patriarchy and capitalism, I think it's interesting and it's probably not a coincidence that they they can just sort of, <laughs> they can make you feel so defeated, even, even mm. at the level of thinking, you know, like if there is this thing that is, you know, patriarchy that is, is so kind of diffused and, you know, suffuses everything, which I think it does, mm. um, how on earth does one think with it or about it or against it? And, and how does one try to kind of, you know, chip away at it or dismantle it or overcome it? I feel like sometimes in my thinking that 
I, I don't know how to, I don't know quite how to think with those concepts in a way, um, mm. even though I think, I think it's, I think they're true. But I think it's really tricky to, to have like a, a sort of single answer about these, you know, really pervasive, complex kind of dynamics. And I, and I do think, you know, I do wonder to myself, because sometimes what I say is that, you know, because people often, often ask me, like, what can we do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think, God, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> and if, if I, you know, if I knew... Everyone else would know too. I'm not some genius, like you know. So I feel often very kind of like unable to answer these questions. Yeah. But I do find myself wondering, you know, is it the case that if you know, if somehow we could undo capitalism, uh, if we could undo patriarchy, would there be no violence? Would there be no sexual violence? And you know, people have wondered about that and written about exactly those questions and. And I think the answer is no. I mean, I think, I mean, sorry, I can't remember how I posed the question, but <laughs> I think if we managed to undo those things, there would still yeah. be violence. There would still be yes. sexual violence. And I think that's a disturbing thought. It's, you know, it's perhaps comforting to think that, you know, sexual violence emerges, yes, from patriarchy. It emerges from capitalism. It emerges from situations in which people are dependent you know, on more powerful others to have a roof over their heads or be able to feed their kids or whatever it might be. And so I I, I sometimes want to have the fantasy that if, you know, if we lived in, in, in a world where our kind of social policies really prioritise protecting vulnerable people and undoing kind of precarious existences, then everything would be so much better. And I think lots of things would be so much better, including questions around sex, because women could have more options to choose from, more freedom to move around. They wouldn't be so dependent on violent partners or, you know, punitive police systems or, you know, immigration systems that put women in a situation where they will trade sex for security, etc. But I don't think sexual violence would disappear. And I, mm. you know, I, I do think that, um, the way in which we inhabit sexuality is so profoundly linked with our histories and our families and our infancy. And I think that it would take a really thorough, complete transformation of society to mean that you wouldn't have violence that emerges from that kind of very challenging crucible as well. But you'd also be relying on having human beings that weren't seeking power <laughs> yeah. and willing to exert, you know, their own forces to to pursue power, which um, that seems like a pretty big ask to me. Yeah. And that's not to justify anything, but it is just to, I think, acknowledge it, a reality about human nature to a degree. Yeah. And I guess from that, I sort of wanted to jump into talking more about consent. I obviously want to first just hear sort of how you would define consent. I think often, I think because of the way you talk about consent, I often find that you're operating at a slightly deeper level where there's an assumed baseline level of consent. And you're kind of then asking the question, well, if that's there, what do we then do? And what does that mean for um, our sexuality? So We'd just like to contextualize, I guess, yeah, how, how you choose to define consent. I mean, consent is, it's such a funny idea, actually, kind of, you know, when you, when you start to sort of think about it, it's sort of premised on an interaction between two people where somebody asks somebody something and the other person consents or not to it which is actually really not how most of human life unfolds. <laughs> you know, co contracts involve consent, you know, certain kind of explicit forms of agreement in, involves that kind of dynamic, but most of our social life doesn't operate in that way. In the sexual context, I think that, you know, what's really important about um, the whole conversation about consent in the last few decades has been the recognition that be having sex with people whom you know to want to have sex with you. And that's got, you know, that, that recognition kind of got solidified around the notion of consent. 
it doesn't necessarily have to be tied, I think, to the notion of consent. There might be other ways to kind of think about that. But it has been very tied, that recognition has been very tied to the law and to, um, you know, these definitions of consent that serve to try and draw a meaningful distinction and an important distinction between sex that's agreed to and sex that is, you know, non-consensual, sex that is forced on someone. I think what has been really valuable about the kind of move towards affirmative consent and all the, you know, the, the increasing casting of these uh, conversations about sex in terms of consent has been that recognition, that kind of insistence that we need to be interested in what the other person wants, you know, that sex is a mutual activity. And that seems, I mean, so obvious that it seems disturbing that we needed a whole kind of cultural hoo-ha to recognize it. But for me, there's the cultural question of the the importance of that recognition and that growing kind of um, acknowledgement within the law, but also within kind of general popular discourse that, you know, we should care about whether the other person wants to have sex with us. But what has happened alongside that is that we have become fixated on a legal notion of consent. And we think about that notion as being the concept that will make sex good again, you know, that will solve all our problems, whether it's to do with rape, whether it's to do with, you know, consensual sex that feels awful and crappy, whether it's to do with harassment, whether it's to do with coercion. I mean, this notion has been asked to bear a burden that it cannot sustain, not because as some critics tend to say, because, you know, oh, you know, you make mistakes, like sex is a gray area, you know, we can't start defining everything as assault, not, not because of that, but because there are so many different forms of sexual misery and coercion and violence and we might need a whole range of concepts and ideas to help us understand, you know, what, what they have in common, to help them understand why they're so pervasive. And this one notion of consent can't do it all. No, no. I mean, when you put it like that, it sounds pretty blindingly clear that it's not a particularly good idea to lump all forms of sexual violence, all forms of bad sex that might not even have been violent, but to use kind of a legal framework to try and understand what are really complex social and interpersonal issues. It's just, Mm. but the irony of that seems to me to be that we're so willing to critique our institutions and our power structures, but then it when it comes to consent, we're so heavily reliant on them for trying to create the kind of change we want to see it. It feels really counterintuitive to me that this is so often what people are pushing for. I don't know if part of it is because that pushing it a layer deeper than that is a lot more challenging. That's where you actually have to start to get people to look back on themselves and reflect on their own behaviour. But it, it seems like just an exercise in moving the goalposts to me. And in The Right to Sex, I think Amaya Srinivasanan raised a really good point where she said, you know, if men in particular just learn what the next goalpost is, then the necessary level of coercion will just come into play in that scenario. And so you're going to see the same thing being repeated over and over and over again, just in in different ways, which again comes back to Foucault, Mm -hmm. very relevant, how we move through history in a very reactive kind of fashion, I think. It's very difficult and it, and it does feel risky to try to kind of, you know, critique consent in, in certain ways, partly because it's the thing we all clung to, you know, it's the thing around which there was actually some kind of consensus about, about sex. You know, it, there was a lot of critique and mockery about the, the 90s and the affirmative consent movement and the Antioch policy and, you know, with lots of pundits kind of, mocking you know this 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 kind of imagined scenario where you kind of have to write a contract every time you want to touch (laughs) whatever you know I mean but it was also 
a kind of cultural conversation around which a lot of people could agree, which is, yes, you don't coerce people into sex. You know, people had worries about, about whether women were kind of re-describing experiences as non-consensual or, you know, whether things were getting too rigid or whatever. But I think there was some kind of sense that, that lots of people could agree on the basics of consent. And I think people poured a hell of a lot of hope into that. And, and you know, with good reason. I mean, you know, and a lot of these conversations were emerging against a background of, of such a kind of callous indifference to women's saying no. You know, the idea that a woman can never say no has been so kind of prevalent. I do think that has changed a little bit to be, you know, a bit more my optimistic, the optimistic version of myself. <laughs> I do think there is a greater recognition that no generally should be understood as a no. But I yeah. think, you know, a lot of the conversations happening in the 90s around consent really came off the back of this recognition that people did not believe that women had a right to say no. And so... You know, the investment in consent as a solution is is huge and understandable. And I have, you know, a lot of sympathy for that. The problem is that if you invest so much in one idea and if it becomes the only way that you can articulate what's complicated about sex in society, and if it becomes difficult then to try to to figure out, is this the most useful concept we have? then we're in just as muddy waters as before. We're just in waters where we now have to kind of religiously affirm our allegiance to this to this concept. Yeah, yeah. And it leaves very little space for exploration and pleasure when you operate in that way, which is why I see there being a problem between this kind of blurring of the distinction between sexual assault and bad sex because both of those things need to be able to be addressed, but the ways that you address those two things are, are really quite different, which mm. sounds obvious, but it's they're often treated in a similar kind of, of fashion. It's, it's almost like we haven't really gotten to a point where we're ready to have the conversation about how bad sex is for a lot of women, mm. even when you take away the violence and the risk of violence and all of these things. I mean, I still think there's a degree to which they're tied, but I do think that that blurring, it's it's interesting how that has has occurred. But it seems to me that we've actually made progress relatively quickly. I mean, extramarital rape wasn't considered to be a thing until not that long ago. So it's not like we've made no progress at all. Well, I think what's, you know, what's interesting about that distinction between kind of assault and bad sex is that, you know, for, for a lot of critics of consent, they, they invoke that distinction as a way to kind of say, you know, this has all gone too far. <laughs> this concept yeah. of consent yes. has gone too far. You know, feminist scrutiny of sex has become entirely paranoid um, and infantilizing. And, you know, bad sex is kind of just a reality. And then what happens, I think, in response to that partly is that women might experience sex that is really bad and makes them makes them feel really demeaned or you know makes them feel that there was some level of kind of lack of choice on their part some kind of subtle forms of coercion and if we treat the only bad sex is assault then it makes sense that women will describe and feel, you know, genuinely experience those um, scenarios as ones of assault and, and much more overt coercion. It's really important to say that, you know, assault and rape are horrendous. Bad sex can also be horrendous, you know, just because the mechanisms that kind of lead you there are harder to grasp they're more subtle unspoken kind of social forces that has to be understood as bad and painful and deserving of compassion and reflection in its own right with us without us having to draw an equivalence you know so I mean that's the paradoxical thing about things like assault and rape is that on the one hand nobody seems to give a shit about them because they happen all the time and, you know, so few cases come to trial, so, you know, so little happens off the back of these things. So on the one hand, it seems like 
nobody cares. On the other hand, it is also the emblem of the worst violence that can be done to a person. And that's really confusing for women. And so it makes sense to me that assault and rape, that they have this kind of centrifugal force that draws everything to them. But I keep wanting to like reiterate that consensual sex, you know, sex that a woman has agreed to can make her feel really, really terrible. And that is really troubling and disturbing. And we really have to treat that with as much kind of seriousness and curiosity as we do about why why some men rape women. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But it's, that's a fairly nuanced distinction. Um, and things like law are often not particularly great at accounting for that. So you can see why we start to run into issues when we rely yeah. on these um, particular methods to, to try and address them. And I think in, in the book, you talk a lot about sort of the the bind between empowerment and punishment and this constant sort of juggling of being just the right amount of sexual so that you can have fun and be explorative but feel safe. And, you know, you do a beautiful job of articulating how much of the onus of consent is put back on women and how consent Mm -hmm. as a concept so often falls in our hands in a way that constrains us far more than it emancipates us. Mm. It's also the the idea that consent can give us a kind of technique or like a, mm. a, a, a method, like a procedure. And I think you see this a lot in um, how men talk about consent. Like they want to be told what they can and can't do and want to understand the rules so that they don't blunder and end up being accused of rape. So there's also an investment in consent as um, being able to tell tell us all exactly what to do so that misunderstandings don't happen, so that, you know, kind of disaster doesn't ensue. And that's, you know, it's very troubling to me because then the onus is on consent as a form of kind of insurance, essentially. And, you know, we've seen this with people developing apps, consent apps that that are powered by this fantasy that, you know, you agree on something and then it's like, it's in the app. It's, you know, it's evidence. It's evidence. It's about forestalling um, the risk of a future accusation and, and protecting a man from that. But, you know, again, it's it falls on women often to, to be the ones to navigate that and to, you know, create the conditions where you are clear about what you want and, you know, you're confident and emphatic in saying what you want so that those misunderstandings don't occur. It's risk management. This is a very kind of neoliberal way of thinking about sexuality through the prism of risk management. And of course, we have to manage risk. We do it all the time, you know, all of us. But women, perhaps especially, you know, we're, we're trained to um, think about how we walk home or, you know, do we go home with some guy we've just met or whatever, because we know the reality of sexual violence. We're also trained to do that because fear is inculcated in us as a way to make us responsible for the violence that might be coming towards us. So, you know, it is a a brute fact of, of our lives that we do have to manage risk, but we must not, I think, let that kind of risk management thinking completely infiltrate our ideas about sex itself and our ideas about the ethics of interaction between people. I shouldn't have to be making those kinds of calculations. It should be entirely possible for me to have sex with somebody and not fear for my life or my, you know, bodily integrity. It's it's such a mark of how bad things are that that risk thinking has gone so deeply in us and, and so familiar that it falls really on women to be the kind of bearers of that risk and to communicate in such a way that they they keep it at bay. Which, you know, as I explain in the book, is also, I mean, just a complete fantasy because if one of the things that women are supposed to do to keep themselves safe is to be very clear about their sexual desire, how come then you have lawyers reading out, you know, texts from women saying, you know, let's have sex, I want you to do whatever, as evidence against the fact that they have been raped. It's an mm. impossible situation that that we're putting women mm. in. 
And it's completely out of line with the reality of how a sexual encounter actually plays out. And I think you raise a really important point, which is that when you have sex with someone, you should be able to rely on the fact that you're with another living, breathing human being who understands interpersonal relationships, is able to read body language, is compassionate enough to be able to read a room, basically. I mean, this isn't overly complex stuff we're talking Mm -hmm. about, or at least it shouldn't be. Yet we've turned it into sort of a a science almost of, as you say, the risk management, trying to put such a rigid framework around it. It takes all of the fun out of it. (laughs) Yeah, and again, you know, because it sort of then encourages us to think about a technique and a concept Mm. and a form of question that will that will be fail safe, you know, that will that will obviate the possibility for violence or for unhappiness. We're not then encouraging people to do exactly as you say, to, to learn how to be attuned to another person, to learn to be interested, to be curious, to also be able to handle what might happen in a sexual encounter. You know, if if somebody changes their mind or if the mood changes, do you take it personally and feel humiliated? Do you then want to punish the woman? Can you handle that? You know, can you can you hold the kind of essential unpredictability and precarity of the human encounter? in such a way that you don't have to resort to violence. Why Why is that? I mean, obviously, that is the focus of, you know, lots of people's work and activism. But when we think about consent, it's like we forget that. Because this idea of consent is, you know, it is partly, it fulfills that fantasy that there will be something simple. Mm. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about self-knowledge, which I think is something that you cover really well, particularly in the the chapter on desire. I wanted to ask you sort of the, and you've just touched on this a little bit, but some of the ways in which um, sort of women's sexual self-knowledge has been almost weaponized against women. Um, you use the example of hookup artists in the book. So I wondered if you could sort of frame it within the context of that example. Yeah, it's, I find, I find this such a kind of thorny and sort of unresolvable problem in a way but I think I think one of the things that I was writing against in a sense in this book was a gesture that I think has been quite familiar in certain versions of feminism you know not not all by any means but there has been a move you know over the last kind of 50 years or so to think that if if we want to resist, you know, the oppression of women by men, if we want to resist the ways in which men violate our boundaries and uh, try to push us into things, the solution to that is to erect very kind of um, solid boundaries to know exactly what you want and to say what you want. Because that would be, in some senses, an appealing solution. You know, it's sort of, it's a counterforce. And I think that sometimes we've been beguiled by that and sort of distracted by that. Because the problem with that response is that it can't fully work. Because it places too much of a burden on women to know exactly what it is they want, you know, whether we're talking sexually or just more generally. It also asks women to do the very thing that they're punished for doing, which is to to have strong boundaries, to say what they want, to push people away, you know, be aggressive or bitchy or whatever whatever it is. But I think it's been such a kind of constant temptation within a lot of feminist thought. And it feels really important to me to kind of refuse that and to say that perhaps especially in the realm of sex, we don't really know what we want. I mean, we might know what we want and then it changes 10 minutes later or we can be completely taken by surprise by our own sexual desires because the one thing that's reliable about sexuality is that it's completely unreliable and unpredictable. It will not be made governable and accountable in the way that the rest of our thinking would like us to make it. You know, I I wanted to try to articulate how women should be safe, even if they're very confused about what they want, 
And even, and perhaps especially if they find it difficult to access what they want, partly because of the misogynistic world that we live in, partly perhaps because they're dealing with the effects of sexual violence, partly because, you know, they have been shamed for their sexual desire in the past. So asking, you know, making self-knowledge a condition for either pleasure or safety, I think just stacks the odds against either of those things. That's a really tricky and kind of fraught argument to make because then what happens is that it, it can feel like you're then opening the doors to opportunistic men who will try to persuade you that they know what it is that you want. So it makes perfect sense to me that, you know, when you feel vulnerable, it can feel safer to say, no, I know exactly what I want. I do this, I do that, I won't do this, I won't do that. And and also to use certain kind of forms of very emphatic language about oneself. You know, I think some of the some of the kind of sexual self-descriptions that that are in the culture are fascinating to me. Like, you know, the idea of like being being a sub or a dom. And, you know, I mean, there are also contexts in which that's part of a kind of cultural language and the sort of forms of practice. And But I also find it very interesting psychologically because I think there is something going on where the act of defining oneself is, again, a form of risk management. And it's not one that I blame anyone for, but I think it's important to see it for what it is, at least partly, which is a way to manage the fear and the anxiety of the risk of sexual violence, but also of the of just the riskiness of the encounter with another person. And one way to manage that unpredictability is to say very emphatically what you are, because not knowing can be really frightening. <laughs> so, you know, I, I feel that it's it's like it's a really ethically, to me, it's an ethically important gesture to make to say that there's this kind of space of non-transparency inside ourselves and perhaps particularly in the sexual realm. But of course there are people who will exploit that and pick up artists are the perfect example because they they literally instrumentalize any research that they come across to do with women's sexuality. And, you know, one of the things that they they make a lot of is the research that showed that women, you know, will say they're not into something sexually, but when they watch pornography of it, their their physiology will respond. And, you know, that's that's a goal to a pickup artist who'll be like, well, she's too... And, and it's so fascinating. They invoke the double standard. They'll say, oh, you know, we live in a very sexist culture um, that makes it very difficult for women to say that they're into whatever kind of sex. You know, she'll, she'll need to learn to let her guard down um, before she agrees to yeah. doing this. And, you know, she'll agree because I coerce her into it, essentially. So, you know, these things are, are really fraught, but I also think it's important to say that we, we are always going to be disappointed if we think that sexuality itself can inoculate us against violence. There is no model of sexuality that will mean that you cannot be abused by somebody. And that's fine because mm-hmm. sexuality shouldn't be responsible for people's yeah. violence. We sh- people should not commit violence against one another because they have some sort of ethical understanding <laughs> that that is not a good thing to do. We can't we can't define sexuality in such a way that it will either completely protect us or leave us open to danger. That's not that's not on sexuality itself to solve. That's on us. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because sort of for me before I began the podcast and sort of started diving deeper into this area, I very much would have fallen into the theory that if someone had asked me what is the best thing you can do for yourself sexually, I would have said know what you want and be good, really good at communicating that with another person, right? That's what I, the answer I think a lot of people would give, particularly women. There's this idea that the good woman, the sexually liberated woman knows herself, has explored herself and has really great communication skills and it doesn't matter if the partner does or not. It doesn't really matter what they're bringing to the table. As long as you Mm -hmm. can do that, then that's the main thing. Everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. 
when you actually think about it, that sounds utterly ridiculous and also not like a great way to form a relationship with someone, whether it's sort of one or four longer term. But I think I'd always felt this sort of slight uneasiness with that idea and I could never uh, sort of articulate why. I felt like a sort of a bad feminist for saying, well, this doesn't quite seem to Mm -hmm. cut it. But I think that's a beautiful summation of, of why it feels uneasy because there is so much more sitting behind those dynamics than just being able to communicate. You could be shouting into a complete void. If no one's listening, then there's no point knowing what you want. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, some somehow along the way, it's as if we've lost sight of the fact that, um, you know, sex is obviously about pleasure, right? To some mm. extent, <laughs> to a large extent, but it's not actually just about pleasure. I, I think that sex is, um, it's a really profoundly strange experience that brings us into contact with something very deep, that is quite frightening and it's it's partly mm. to do with death you know yes. it's about yes. kind of losing control it's about our own helplessness it's about realizing that realizing that we do not have power which is why it's i think also so powerful and threatening and frightening for men because masculinity is so traditionally defined in terms of control especially in the sexual realm But really what is so powerful about sex is that we encounter our own mortality, we encounter our own complete powerlessness. And that's also what is so wonderful about it, potentially, you know, if if the circumstances are right, if, if we feel safe enough to explore, to like touch that very kind of deep, archaic, strange place in ourselves. That's what makes it frightening and that's what makes it really wonderful. But I think if we could come more into contact with that, then we might feel more at ease with this idea that we might not know what gives us pleasure or what we want or, you know, because it's not it's not just about I, I want to have my orgasm in this way. It's about an encounter with something that shakes us. And, you know, I think, you know, in the book I quote people like Leo Bassani, who I think writes so beautifully about this and I think you know I think queer theory has often actually reckoned much more deeply with that kind of bind of of life and death um around sex in ways that that I think they do really kind of show some kind of wider path ahead that might free us from this more technical procedural understanding of sex that as far as I can tell also doesn't bring people that much pleasure (laughs) yeah yeah well it's like the the french translation of the word for orgasm is something like a small death right yeah yeah Yeah, which that kind of says says a lot in and of itself but i completely agree with um what you were just speaking to around sort of queer theory i mean even the the sort of a conclusion you come to in the book i think the last line of the book it I have it here. It says, working out what we want is a life's work. It has to be done over and over again. The joy may lie in it never being done. And that reminded me a lot of Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts and sort of the the real crux of that book of it being mm. getting to know yourself, being a life's work, and that actually being kind of the point. <laughs> mm. You know, we're, we're meaning-making creatures that are always yeah. seeking try and understand ourselves so why would we want to have this really rigid idea of what's a yes and what's a no yeah so i i really appreciate that that's the the point that you kind of arrive at without necessarily offering a specific framework or solution that kind of reperpetuates the issues that have gotten us here Mm. i do think that is what's really profound about sex it, it is that kind of encounter with with yourself as kind of constantly like being being sort of reborn and you know remaking contact with all these different parts of yourself and I think that's why it is so meaningful for so many people mm. but of you know but those ways of talking about it they don't they don't exclude or they don't um you know obviate the need to to try to find ways to do that in a way which 
is safe, you know, and and yeah. and respectful, yeah. you know that, that, and that and that's what's really that's what's really tricky is that I think we're often asked to kind of, you know, either choose between safety, or kind of risky pleasure, and my hope, like you know, my hope is that is that you can have both, you know, that in, that we can try to find ways to to create conditions where there's like a kind of collective investment in in the beauty of that sort of risky encounter, but which doesn't involve being indifferent to the ways in which violence and coercion constantly creep in and to try to, you know, prevent that from happening. Yeah. And I mean, that doesn't sound unattainable to me. I always like to... Uh leave the show on as much of a hopeful note as possible <laughs> so there is there is hope in there which is good <laughs> yeah i think so thanks for listening to the philosophy of sex and a huge thank you to Catherine angel you can head to the show notes for more information about Catherine's work and tomorrow the sex will be good again Catherine is also the author of Daddy Issues and Unmastered, a book on desire most difficult to tell. In all genres, her writing is thought-provoking and I highly recommend it to everyone. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcho, who edited this episode and wrote the music. If you like what you're hearing or have a question, please leave us a review or email us at info at becoming.me. Don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes.